Kia ora, and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. This podcast was produced to coincide with the Rebellious Mind seminar series. The series was produced by the Stout Research Centre for New Zealand Studies as part of Victoria University of Wellington's 125th anniversary celebrations. Rebellious Minds explores episodes of dissent, nonconformity, critical thinking, and eccentricity from across the university's history, aspiring to highlight stories of rebellion in political, social, and cultural life. My name is Stephen Loveridge, and in this session I'm speaking with Ari Faber. Hello, Ari. Hello. Ari, in today's session we're going to discuss your research on the history of OMS, the Organisation to Halt Military Service, its 1972 campaign to end compulsory military training, and in particular the relationship between that campaign and Victoria University of Wellington. But first let's establish your relationship with the subject. You're undertaking research on OMS for your honours dissertation. How did you find yourself on this path? What does your research involve? And can you tell us what your dissertation's central argument is? Um, so 2022 finds us at the 50-year anniversary of the OMS campaign. Um, it only ran for one year through 1972. Mm-hmm. And this year, Robert Reed, who was an OMS activist, reached out to one of my supervisors who I was working with on a summer scholarship about a collection of some of the OMS materials that was stored right here at Victoria University at the J.C. Beagle Hall Reading Room. Uh, the archive there is four thick files of Ohm's paraphernalia. There's some old posters, minutes, speech cards, pamphlets, press releases, and a whole lot of newspaper clippings. My supervisor passed it along to me with the idea that it might develop into my honours project going into my fourth year. I was immediately interested because it connected with an interesting time period in terms of protest movements and the development of a countercultural milieu. It also presented a short-lived group with very little existing work about them in the historiography. A lot of people don't know about New Zealand's history of compulsory military training, or they don't realise that the scheme went on for quite as long as it did. My research is twofold. I've conducted oral interviews with a number of OMS activists, and I'm aiming to complement those interviews with some archival research. Alongside this, I'm relying on the work of a number of other scholars who research this period of political and social history. I'd like to ask you about the oral component of your research. I'd like to put a quote to you and to see how and if it resonates. One New Zealand official noted his sense of examining a thesis covering events he was directly involved in and contrasting an apt use of archival records with a general sense of, it wasn't like this. Here's the quote. The files often lack the human thumbprints of those who made them, all the muddle and misgivings, the argument and atmospherics which preceded what actually happened. End quote. What do you think? Has talking to the people directly involved in OMS, as you say, five decades ago, has speaking to them directly given you a sense of the atmospherics of the subject? So what has been really interesting in the course of my research is noting the differences between what is remembered and what is recorded. The memories and the archives both reveal really different dimensions or atmospherics, like you say, of the campaign. So the paper files can often be incredibly sensory and kind of direct material experiences. They're rich with details, with handwritten notes and edits, crossing outs and smudging, internal disagreements and all the rest. But they can also be just a paper trail of the organisation. 
one which is kind of limited in its ability to represent real events. So interviewing the participants is really interesting because some things stick out a little more than others. They've all gone through their own process in the 50 years since of making sense of the Ohms campaign, of that period of their life, and they have their own analysis and reflections of the campaign. They're less inclined, I think, to remember the details of the meetings and the minute keepings and the pamphleting on street corners, the kind of activist spade work. What is front of mind for some of these men is the kind of atmospherics of the campaign. So OMS was taking place in a pretty tremendous time of cultural and social ferment and upheaval. It's a bit of a whirlwind of political activity for the scene. There's a sense of great opportunity and of global youth revolt. Uh, what sticks out a lot is the remarkable stunts and the kind of disruptions that these young people got themselves into. Public pickets and court cases, sneaking into the Department of Labor and disrupting the conscientious objection tribunal. The other thing that sticks out is something I might call the geographies of protest, the places and spaces and routes which become imbued with significance, even 50 years on trekking down Willis Street to deliver press releases to newspaper offices, hiding in the office of the New Zealand University Students Association to evade cops delivering summons, walking to the P.O. Box on Armour Street in Christchurch, sabotaging medical examinations when the medical vans came up to campus ahead of the ballot. I think that these two sources, the archival materials and the oral interviews, can actually be incredibly complementary for this kind of project. That's a fascinating way of putting it, and it makes sense, doesn't it, that uh, these will become moments in a life story, mm. um, the sights and sounds that remain in the memory and the small details that perhaps fade. And put a pin in that because I'd like to return to the sense of how people reflected on this part of their life. But to keep it on you for a moment, mm -hmm. you're now relatively advanced in your project, correct? Yeah. Uh, if you could give your younger self, starting out on this project, one piece of advice, what would it be? I think I'm... Pretty happy with how things have gone so far. I'm definitely nearing the end. Um, my due date is looming. It's early October. The only thing I wish is maybe that I'd just started writing a little earlier. <laughs> I think everyone says that. Mm. But just putting pen to paper to kind of test out some of my arguments and my theories and pushing them as far as I could. At the moment, I've split the writing into three parts. The first is sort of about the context, causes, the background, the middles, the events of the campaign itself, and the last being this more reflective, evaluative kind of piece about the legacies and the wrapping up of the campaign. And coming to that structure provided a lot of clarity, I think, for sorting out my, my research and my notes. Well, some things are cliche for a reason, and yeah. many people listening to this uh, will know or should know that uh, starting to write early is always a good move, best with the looming deadline. <laughs> I want to move towards OMS's campaign. First of all, can you tell us why it's called OMS? Uh, so OMS is kind of the thing that most often gets mentioned in the historiography, if you like. When OMS is mentioned, it's always about the name because it's kind of a genius name. It's got mm -hmm. about a, a triple meaning, perhaps. It stands for, as we've said, the Organisation to Halt Military Service. Mm -hmm. But this initialism, it sounds like ohms, which is the physics term for a unit of measurement. It measures resistance, so there's a bit of a pun there. Mm -hmm. And OHMS also stands for On Her Majesty's Service, which is a bit of another joke because that was the 
that was the acronym that was on all correspondence you got from the state. Uh, that's kind of extra witty because on your forms of registration and on all the on all the forms of registration and any communication you had with the Department of Labor, which governed the national service, they would all have ohms stamped on them. And the other thing that Robert Reed points out is that ohm is the uh, final letter of the Greek alphabet, so it stood for the end. Right, um, which is what they sought, yeah. So a bit of cheeky subversion in there, shall we say? For sure. Okay. You mentioned that OMS's campaign is, sorry, OMS's campaign is in <laughs> 1972. Uh, let's set the scene leading up to that. At various times, New Zealand has had systems of compulsory military training. The version relevant to this story was the system introduced by the national government in 1962. Why was that system introduced? So as you say, the histories of compulsory military training and of national service, they're long and they're rife with arguments around policy and, and the best architecture of the scheme. Other historians have written about that at length. What's important to note is that the forerunning scheme, which operated from 1950 to 1958, it was decided by something of a controversial referendum, but it was supported by both major parties to varying degrees. It was overseen by two consecutive national governments, so under Sidney Holland and then very briefly under Keith Holyoke. And it was in, reintroduced, um, as you say, in 1962. The difference here of the second scheme was that rather than compulsory military training with some exemptions, this scheme operated on the basis of a ballot. It was far more selective and it ensured that the Department of Labor, who oversaw the bureaucracy of the whole scheme, they didn't over or undersupply the army with young men to train. The scheme required a period of intensive full-time service, so that would be when you're at the training camps, Then it was followed by a term of part-time service, and then a longer position, two years, I believe, in the Army Reserve. And just to give an idea of scale, the scheme operated from 1962 to 72, and it saw 23,300 young men go through military training at that time, so not an insignificant amount. But the broader context of this policy and these schemes is, of course, the Cold War and the ideological and, and military conflict between the Soviet Union and its allies and the US and the rest of the capitalist bloc to whom New Zealand was loyal, particularly in issues of foreign policy. The system was introduced as a just-in-case measure in an era of pretty intense anxiety and the idea was that the army would be bolstered by trained young men and this kind of national security was touted as a safeguard against instability, particularly as New Zealand was seen to be neighbouring the troubled areas of the world. So it provided, in the words of defence policy reviewers at the time, a flexible state of operational readiness should there be marked deterioration in the strategic outlook in the future. But what this meant in practice was that military training was pretty implicitly geared towards potential fighting in the Vietnam War. Trainees were given reason why lectures about containing communism. They were taught to shoot at targets which cartoonishly resembled Vietnamese people. And they underwent training which attempted pretty explicitly to recreate the conditions in Vietnam. It's certainly a reoccurring point that um, I've heard from many males of that generation that there was the sense of, are we going to go to Vietnam? 
you know, is, is this scheme going, if I involve myself in the scheme, will I end up in Southeast Asia? Which was the case in Australia and the United States through their equivalent systems of the draft. Correct? Yeah, I think it's easy to see, to look back in hindsight and to think, oh, it's, we never ended up going. But at the time, that anxiety that one could end up in Vietnam, mm. the military training was geared towards Vietnam and all the rhetoric around it was, it felt like a very real possibility for these young men. And right. that is really scary in a way. Mm. So I'll just draw down that on a moment. It's correct that no conscripts or compulsory military training cadets went to Vietnam and from New no. Zealand? So we didn't have any conscripts in New Zealand go to Vietnam. Okay. Can you then give us a sense of how the system works? I mean, imagine it's, say, 1968, and I've got a 19th birthday coming up. What happens? So from July 1968, the age of liability for service was reduced to 19. Previously, okay. it was 20. Um, but the same kind of guidelines around compulsion remained. So you would have two weeks after your birthday, that's your kind of deadline for registration. Mm -hmm. And after that point, you are classed as a late registrant, if you do get around to it, or a non-registrant. So failure to register, as well as failure to notify a change of address or report to a medical examination or to not turn up to training camp they were all fineable offences and people did get fined. People who did not register in time could not receive the dole, they couldn't be legally employed and they were determined to be committing an offence for which about a dozen OMS activists later spent time in and out of the courtroom. So if you were balloted, you could postpone army training and that grew increasingly popular as the scheme went on, especially for university students because you could split your training into two stints during the varsity holidays. It was also permitted for men with families or with particular jobs like seasonal workers, policemen, firemen. But for those who were not permitted postponement or conscientious objector status, which you could apply for, the only option was to attend military training. So Ohm's big critique of the act is that it presented only two options. You could register for the ballot or you could register as a conscientious objector. A third alternative, which could express genuine dissent for the act and all that it stood for, had to be created. And this would be the path of non-compliance that Ohm's would encourage. Could I just follow up on that registering for a con as a conscientious objector? How was conscientious objection recognised within the system? So there had been allowances made for conscientious objectors in the previous act, and that committee was still in play because it heard people who were requesting to be allowed conscientious object objector status mm -hmm. in relation to compulsory unionisation. So that committee was... Um, three men in different towns and centres around New Zealand and they would hear people's cases and they would determine whether or not they would be granted that status. It was traditionally and most often used by people with uh, strong religious convictions right. um, and it was allowed very occasionally for people who had political objections to all wars but Ohms would kind of test that allowance. Okay. So let's summarise there on this fictional version of myself in 1968. <laughs> I've just turned 19. I'm expected to register. I go down to the post office, the police station. So you go to the Department of Labour or the post office okay. and you pick up a registration form. I fill in my details. Yep. 
uh, a ballot is periodically held, uh-huh. which draws, and what, what kind of numbers are we talking? I know you gave us a figure over the decade. but Yeah, it really varies. Um, I think they're drawing around 1,000, but the flexibility of that scheme mm-hmm. was kind of the... The army's requirements? Yeah. Okay. So it could vary quite a bit. Uh, as the scheme went on, they had to draw extra numbers. They started sort of adding about 100 to the calculation Okay. because it became recognised that about 100 people that you would draw would be conscientious objectors. So it had to be a really high degree of flexibility, especially as groups, as OMS, started futzing around with those registrations Mm. and they had to make more allowances in order to balance, to ballot the right amount of people. Okay. So my number then comes up. Mm -hmm. Uh, I proceed to a medical check. I'm past fit. I can appeal to a board if I wish to to register as an objection, yep. uh, an objector, sorry. They say, I don't do that. I am then expected to proceed to camp for training. Yeah, that's the one. Okay. So you're going to go to a train station, and if you're in the North Island, you might end up at Waiudu. In the South Island, there's some around Canterbury as well. Um, and then that's going to be your short period of full-time service right. where you're doing a stint in a training camp, learning how to shoot a gun, military drills, all of that. Right then in the reserve for two years two years okay the other major component of your story is the vietnam war and reactions to it new zealand first deployed a military commitment uh, in the region in 1965 oms is formed in early 1972 can you talk us through i know a huge uh, subject you write a book on this people have can you talk us through the social responses and attitudes in new zealand to the war over those six or so years leading up to the formation of oms So later in that period, I would say that opposition to the Vietnam War and particularly New Zealand's involvement in it took a lot of cues from activism in the United States. In New Zealand, there has always existed a sort of loose coalition of groups who've traditionally imposed the ramping up of militarism in New Zealand, people like Quakers, other Christian circles, um, pacifist people who lived in communes and some trade unionists. But widespread opposition to the Vietnam War as it developed closer to, say, 67, 68, it's reflective of a broader era in which the countercultural scene and student politics became maybe more attentive to international issues and New Zealand's foreign policy. So the Committee on Vietnam emerged in 1965 and became the organisation at the centre of protest um, for the remaining years of the Vietnam War. A lot of the folks in the Committee on Vietnam came from the campaign to end nuclear disarmament and at the same time halt all racist tours, were establishing a movement against sporting contact with apartheid South Africa. So it was really a whirlwind time that saw organising for a number of causes and they overlapped and linked in various ways. The significance of the Vietnam War in particular is that it became, and I'm going to quote, Roberta Rebel here says it became woven into the fabric of cultural and generational change. So people built on the experiences of the anti-war movement. It brought with it new tactics, new militancy and new energy, particularly a kind of boisterousness, directness, a penchant for street politics and for public displays. I think all of these proved to be really important ingredients in the development of OMS come 1972. Excellent. Okay, well, let's get down to the specifics then. What events led to OMS being formed in February 1972? So OMS begins 
you could say in October 71, okay. if you want to push it. That's when Robert Reed has the idea of the name for Ohms, studying for his final physics exam at Lincoln University. What's important about Robert is that he'd been involved with student politics before. I think the most important things to note here is the student Christian movement and a successful high school petition which sought an end to the cadets program. Uh, these were the kind of quasi-military schemes which taught teenagers marching drills in high school. Mm -hmm. So the idea for Ohms was formed when Robert was approaching his 19th birthday. He was pondering his own position on military service came from a Methodist background, um, but wasn't really content with the option for conscientious objection. So I would say the predecessor to Ohms, if we can call it that, would be a number of individuals making stands against national service by not registering, by leaving training camp, writing letters of protest to the Department of Labor. Even for these men, and future OMS members were amongst them, there was a sense that the individual position wasn't going to be enough and a collective response was required. So after Robert Reed finishes up at Lincoln University, he moves up here to Victoria University and he's kind of uh, workshopping the idea of OMS, if you like. He's introducing it to other people in the student Christian movement and to friends in the New Zealand University Students Association and connecting with all those other individual non-compliers that I've mentioned. So OMS formally starts up right here on campus in February 22nd, small meeting with about 30 people. And before you know it, in April, there's branches that have been set up in all the other main city centres and some provincial centres as well. Right. Now, the name may be a hint, uh, but what was OMS' mission statement? So OMS aimed to repeal the National Military Service Act, which was the policy that governed the training camps and all the kind of associated systems. Part of the campaign was about building public support, increasing awareness of the scheme, of opposition to it, forging solidarity and allyships with other groups, church organizations, student Christian movement, as I've mentioned, the NZUSA as well. Another part was about disrupting the act while it was still on the books. So Ohm set about this by encouraging non-compliance, not registering for service, not registering as a conscientious objector, but by disrupting the workings of the scheme wherever possible and convincing as many other men as possible to do so as well. So that non-compliance is a major part of this. This is not about trying to make conscientious objection more expansive or make the system work for those who wanted to object. This is about um, resistance in the purest sense. Absolutely. In conversation with Brian Newman and Marty Braithwaite, we kind of came to the conclusion that OMS was by no means a pacifist group. Yep. It was pretty explicitly an anti-war group. Um, if it was otherwise, they might have just spread awareness about conscientious objection, and they certainly weren't opposed to having conscientious objectors amongst their ranks. Mm -hmm. um, but the central thrust of the campaign was that non-compliance, the okay. idea of disrupting the scheme and the idea of building up non-compliers. Okay. Thinking about the start of OMS campaign, where does this position sit in the political landscape? I mean, this is, you, you mentioned working alongside churches and other social groups. Is this seen as a completely radical position? Is this something that people can be uh, brought along with? Or is it seen as wild-eyed and um, rebellious? It's a little bit of all of that. I think the church connection mostly comes out of the 
family and the community connections of those key organizers. It wasn't adopted as an organizational stance by any means, but it came out of Robert and Jeff and Ken coming from Methodist backgrounds, Salvation Army backgrounds, Mm -hmm. having their beginnings in the student Christian movement, attending things like uh, Quaker training camps Mm -hmm. for nonviolent resistance. Um, So that is a significant sort of ideological influence, if you like, Mm -hmm. but it didn't uh, pervade the whole organization. There was a whole host of different influences at play there. I would definitely say it was a radical group, but it was also a strategic group. And so it wasn't opposed to appealing to more respectable, respectable organizations like church leadership in order to build public support for its mission. Right. I mean, to do a bit of foreshadowing, obviously, it does form a pretty successful uh, connection with mainstream politics within totally. a relatively short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What motivated a person then to join the campaign and where did they get their ideas from? I mean, I think a lot of people familiar with uh, pacifism or anti-war activism in New Zealand are going to be nodding along at how familiar some of this sounds. Uh, or is this is this about a connection to New Zealand's history and forces present within New Zealand society, or is this reflecting uh, forces coming in from overseas, a bit of both, or something else? I would say a bit of both. So the influence of America and of Australia are really significant, particularly because they actually were sending conscripts to the Vietnam War, and so they were sort of in a much more fraught situation with regards to resisting the draft. The other part of it is that OMS did take inspiration from running groups in New Zealand. The members of the Christchurch OMS branch often made reference to the Passive Resistors Union, which was an organization that was around um, in the early 1900s, and the Christchurch OMS branch named their newsletter Repeal after the Passive Resistors Union newsletter of the same name. Um, So there was a local influence there. There was also a overseas influence there, and that's maybe reflective of the countercultural things happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. Um, And the mix of motivations for becoming a non-complier are pretty diverse, pretty eclectic, as you say, and they reflect both of these influences. Ohms published a fair amount of materials, and the Ohms book, which they published, it was inspired by similar booklets done by the Draft Resistors Union in mm-hmm. Australia. Um, this book has been a really key source for me. Um, it publishes a critique and an analysis of the National Military Service Act, uh, which is great, a timeline of the organisation, but most valuable is the testimony of OMS members listing the reasons why they chose non-compliance, because it sort of demonstrates the ideological hodgepodge that is happening at the time. Should I read a few out? Yes, please. Cool. So Robert Reed, who I've mentioned a few times, um, Robert Reed, in his sort of testimony of non-compliance, he writes, at church, I learnt about Jesus who incarnated love and compassion and caring. I was taught the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Christians should see non-compliance to conscription not as a negative act of defiance, but rather as the positive obedience to a higher and absolute moral law. John Hillier, uh, who I believe was from down south, He wrote uh, from his experience at military camp. He says, From having attended 12 weeks at Burnham Military Camp in Canterbury, I've come to the following conclusions. 
70% of national servicemen return home having been brainwashed into believing army policies, government policies, and the moral implications expressed by the two as regards to Southeast Asia, communism, and the war in Vietnam. And the third testimony from Marty Braithwaite, who I also interviewed, he writes in a letter to the Department of Labor, Well, sir, I have decided to totally non-comply with your immoral, undemocratic, ridiculous act and will not register. I will not have my basic civil liberties infringed by you and your act. It is also an acceptance of your whole foreign policy of collective defense and the military alliance with America. Neither am I prepared to have my conscience picked at and judged by a tribunal set up by you. So you can see there's a total diversity of responses, but there are also a few threads that run through all of this rhetoric. And I think the first is maybe obvious, but it's the connection between the National Service Act and the war in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. There's also a critique of conscientious objection as being a sort of insufficient means of dissent. And there's the feeling that growing non-compliance is both morally correct and politically viable, that if enough non-compliers join their ranks, OMS could render the scheme impossible. But there's also the other ideologies and influences coming through, uh, giving them a sort of Christian character, anti-imperialist, sometimes pacifist, um, and sometimes Marxist as well. Right. That seems very familiar um, against other times uh, where there are anti-war activists who are often more united by a common cause than a common vision. And I wonder then, did that become any kind of issue uh, within OMS over cause and conduct? This is an interesting one because the campaign is so truncated, it's hard to zero in on those internal issues. There's a sentiment that I found in my interviews on reflection, not just about OMS, but about campaigning maybe on the left in general, Mm that Christchurch in particular saw various philosophies able to work together really effectively. And this might have been them tooting their own horn, but uh, Brian says that Christchurch Ohms saw communists, Quakers, church people, um, the PYM, or the Progressive Youth Movement, were there as well. They were the complete rat bags of the universe. Mm -hmm. Wellington, in contrast, was seen to have maybe more of an academic focus alongside an activist one, Um, and that's proximity to the university for one thing, Uh, but it was said to be maybe more prone to infighting and kind of sectarianism. Maybe that's because there was a proliferation of lots of little socialist groups here, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm not sure if I'm seeing those differences really borne out in the archive. They more have come about on reflection and on interviews with people. Okay. You're putting me in the mind with that Christchurch comment about one from World War I, which uh, equally talked about a certain type of pacifist peculiar to Christchurch. <laughs> um, so you mentioned OMS is founded at Victoria, uh-huh. uh, but what else is there in the relationship between Vic and OMS? Uh, so the campus provided, I would say, a vital centre of operations. Um, OMS was not only composed of students, of course, but on a practical level, Uh, The university was where you were able to find all the other young men approaching the age of national service. Mm -hmm. It was started on campus. uh, It was populated by a lot of students. The kind of key connections here are university papers and university notice boards as being really important parts of publicity, getting the message out, spreading Ohm's guff and publicising protests and meetings. Um, So the salient newspaper, which is digitised online, has been a really important source for my research. Um, 
and it publicised a lot of meetings, um, but also being able to read those kind of letters to the editor and see some of those um, that correspondence going on. I think there are two examples which really describe the way that the campus was important to OMS activity. The first is the issue of medical examinations. So when the, the time came, ballot is approaching, the medical van would actually drive up to the kind of open space where the hub is today mm -hmm. and they would perform the medical examinations, they would have the heart monitor in the van, they would be asking young men to run a few laps around and checking their, their lung quality and so on. And one of the early ways that OMS began to disrupt the National Service Act was by disrupting the medical examinations. Um, so what they did is they found young men who were going in for the medical exams. They said, do you want to do it? Can we send someone else in instead? And they would, maybe a bit cruelly on reflection, um, send in a young asthmatic man to do the medical examinations for these people. Mm -hmm. um, and then a couple of days later in the paper, they would put out a notice saying, hey, we messed up all these medical exams. Looks like you're going to have to do them again. So that's one key early way that OMS... Uh, really messed up the National Service Act and the running of that scheme. The second important connection to campus would be the filling out of false registration forms. Mm -hmm. This would become a really key tactic for OMS. Uh, started as something of a joke, filling in forms with the names of government officials or fictional characters, but it, came, it became a really important strategy for the organisation. And it speaks to kind of the disruptive nature of the campaign, but also the kind of humorous, light-hearted dimensions. Um, Ohms would have fill-in-a-falsy days on campus, um, and this was a way that the Ohms campaign went beyond its kind of member base, and men and young women could all contribute by filling in a false form. As time went on, this strategy became more important, OMS began using electoral roles to craft really canny false registrations, mm -hmm. um, which took the Department of Labor a lot of time to figure out and to sort the real from the false. Right. Can you say anything to the results of this campaign? So the false registrations form kind of comes to a head when OMS does a raid at the Department of Labor. Um, they break in and they steal or uplift or perhaps liberate um, some <laughs> registration forms. Um, and by Ohm's account, they would say 30 to 40% of those were probably false forms. Hard to verify, but because they were getting pretty advanced with their false forms, I would say it would, I wouldn't trust necessarily the Department of Labor to really sort what was real and fake there. But that is kind of how that tactic ended up there was with the, um, the liberation of the forms. Mm -hmm. Have you found any archival sources from uh, defence officials giving comment to this campaign? Uh, the main critique there is the sort of rhetoric around false forms being a waste of taxpayer money, mm -hmm. um, which I think OMS probably saw as being a credit to their campaign because that is, after all, what they sought to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so the campaign starts in February 1972. It follows along the course of the year. Are there any peaks or troughs, or is it a pretty constant? It's pretty constant the whole way through. Yeah. Um, Anzac Day is kind of a first really important national day mm -hmm. um, of protest at various centres. Different things happen, and it continues throughout the year. 
um, the court cases kind of pick up in the latter half of the year. Yep. And so then there's a, it's a legal dimension there, um, challenging court cases. Uh, a lot of them are dismissed on the basis of technicalities. There's a lot of bureaucracy back and forth there, people refusing to turn up to court dates. Um, people turning up to court dates, challenging the summons and then getting it postponed for later on in the year. Um, the kind of one key event would be Jeff Wolford, who was a very early non-complier and was sort of furthest down the path of non-compliance, if you like. He was the OMS member who did go to jail um, and that was right before the election. He served three weeks in jail. Mm-hmm. It was meant to be three months, um, but it did get cut short um, after an appeal. Right. Speaking of that, how many people are going to jail through this campaign? Uh, Jeff Wolford is the only one who ends up in jail. I would say maybe a dozen court cases and mostly for non-registration, some for the non-payment of fines, a few for sticking up illegal posters, but none of them end up seeing jail time, mostly because the law changes. Can you speak to that? What makes a poster illegal? <laughs> um, I don't know if I if I know. I know there was one stuck on the side of a bus stop, and I think that was not allowed. Okay. Um, and I know that someone served a, a getaway driver for that particular event, and then they all ended up getting caught. But OMS activists also speak to a certain hesitancy perhaps towards the end of the campaign to actually follow through with putting OMS members in prison. The uh, imprisonment of Jeff Wolford was perhaps seen as being a bit of a warning, making an example of the Mm organisation. But as the election grew nearer, the campaign sort of seemed to run out of steam a little bit. And then as Labour won we'll discuss, campaigns sort of slowed to a halt. Right. So obviously in 1972, we're leading up to a general election between what would have been Jack Marshall's National Party and um, the Labour Party under Kirk, Norman Kirk. That's held. Kirk wins. What happens to OMS after the election? So Jeff Wolford is actually witnessing those election results coming in while he's in jail. And shortly after that, um, his sentence is appealed uh, by a group of people um, the local Labour Party MP, uh, some sympathetic lawyers and OMS activists, and his sentence is curtailed to three weeks rather than three months. Officially speaking, OMS votes itself out of existence after the election of Norman Kirk, mm-hmm. um, because Kirk did indeed abolish the National Military Service Act. Mm-hmm. Even then, says Brian Newman, we were never that excited about the Labour Party. So there was a degree of scepticism um, about how things would go from there. Uh, The Labour government claimed they would continue with the legal cases that were already underway relating to the Act um, and that they wouldn't grant amnesty to any non-compliers. Still, all the ongoing cases were soon dismissed and no further OMS members actually found themselves charged. Um, So from then on, OMS no longer has a reason to exist and OMS members move on to different causes often. They move on with their lives and for a lot of them they carry the kind of uh, the sentiments of, of anti-war activism and anti-imperialism into kind of future political efforts. Mm. And the Food Labour government also uh, removes New Zealand's last, the last part of New Zealand's commitment in Southeast Asia. Exactly. And for many OMS activists, they look back and see that as being 
the kind of real victory point of, of 72 was the removal of um, troops from Vietnam and the end of the National Military Service Act as kind of a nice benefit alongside that. Right. Let's pivot back to a point we kind of foreshadowed earlier. Uh, your research is centred on asking people to reflect on an episode in their lives, this point 50 years prior. Can you give us any sense on how your subjects reflected on OMS, its legacy, and what 1972 means decades later? Uh, did it set them on a particular path, as it recorded as a moment from a different time, or something else? I think OMS is remembered uh, for a lot of people as perhaps setting them on a particular path. Though for a lot of them, even though they were young, 18, 19, 20, it wasn't really their first rodeo. They'd been involved with uh, other political efforts and campaigns before then. But OMS represents a maybe a change from a individual politics into a collective one. Mm-hmm. A few men have expressed that that was a kind of important turning point for them, was the, for example, the critique of conscientious objection into a collective stand of resistance. That is kind of a, a lesson that they took with them into future organising. I would say there's... Um, there's sort of a number of ways that you could look back on OMS, and a lot of that is revealed in uh, talking to its activists and looking at the ways that they've reflected on the old documents they've created. Some of them you reread and, and they think, wow, it's really actually politically astute. It's quite, um, you know, that's quite valuable or that's quite well written. And then others will read back and say, oh gosh, it's very naive, very polemical, maybe puerile. And it kind of connects with these these different readings in history of of the 1970s. Was it a moment in which the the counterculture um, emerged and had this sort of individualist critique of of conformity and um, became consumed with ideas of individual choice, foreign policy, moral issues, and the different ways that we remember that period of time. No, I like that. I suppose in the final sense that memory is an intensely personal thing. Mm. Mm. Ari, thank you for your time and insight today. It's been a fascinating conversation and reflecting in a time that in some senses is in living memory and in some senses, as you say, five decades ago. Best with bringing your research to completion and that looming deadline. Again, this podcast was produced as part of the Stout Research Centre for New Zealand Studies Rebellious Minds Seminar Series.